0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to RBMA and Infinix's webinar, Boosting Imaging Reimbursements with AI-Powered Predictive Analytics and Claim Prioritization. Today's session will be presented by Navini Nair, Chief Product Officer of Infinix Healthcare. He has spent the last 20 years in healthcare technology industry focused on patient experience with some of the largest healthcare payers in the industry and leading edge technology firms. He has spent the last 10 years focused on the application of artificial intelligence to improve the patient and provider experience. Please welcome our presenter, Navaneeth Nair. Thank you, Megan, and good afternoon, everybody. I'm coming to you from Austin, Texas. And interesting trivia that I read today is that today, Texas is hotter than 99% of the rest of the earth, somewhere, including the Saharan and the sub Saharan desert. talk about being hot. So I appreciate all of you taking the time and coming to this session. I want to take this time to really kind of spend a little bit talking about, I think, all the buzz that's going around AI and what's happening with, with the kind of the broader AI, I would say, technology spectrum, but at the same time, how some of it has real life outcome and use cases with with respect to revenue cycle within kind of here and now problems that we are dealing with right so sometimes AI sounds like this magical thing that sits out there which is further I would say kind of enhanced by the fascination with chat GPT and some of the newer things that have been going on and as as was mentioned earlier I've been a AI practitioner for 10 plus years and I have to tell you, I love the fascination because it's got more people interested in it, but we, there are some very practical things we can do that doesn't require the complexity of what a chat GPT does to actually solve outcomes in today's world. So I'm hoping to spend a little time talking to you about it. Hopefully, at the end of the session, you will be able to understand how what the AI-driven use cases are within kind of how we think about revenue cycle. And I'm going to focus quite a bit on AR, AR management, and recovery and denial management in particular, because I think we see a lot of value there. Now, there are a lot of use cases across the entire lifecycle, but we'll focus ourselves around that. And, and hopefully, you'll walk away with some understanding of the possibilities that exist. Now, execution needs its own set of kind of investments and getting to talk to the right partners associated to it but at least you you at least understand what the state of the art is in the industry today as you think about your own individual practices and and revenue and revenue cycle processes as i said we'll we'll, we'll touch a little bit on the broader ai aspects then we'll talk about re, reimbursement challenges i'm not going to spend a lot of time on it i don't want to preach to the choir you all know the life that you live today and the challenges that you face I'll just want to kind of talk about it as anecdotes and I'm kind of seeing, and then we'll talk about how AI can be used in this arena to actually improve what we do. Let's kind of dive right in. I think AI has been talked about in healthcare quite a bit. Now, sometimes we confuse what AI stands for in, in the healthcare specific arena. And actually, it applies to a lot of other arenas also. When we think of AI, there is this natural assumption of it being some super intelligence that's somehow going to kind of take over the world or or solve problems end-to-end. And and to be honest, could there be a future like that? Sure. Some people are already afraid of it. Elon Musk talks about it being... Kind of a danger to humanity, but but from where I sit and what I look at it from actual practical applications, particularly in the space of healthcare, AI should be redefined as augmented intelligence rather than artificial intelligence, right? So you think of it more as making you smarter, making things more predictive, making things more prescriptive, rather than actually taking over some process and kind of doing this end-to-end. I I sometimes cringe when I see a lot of kind of market noise around, oh, intelligent automation. And I, I understand the construct and what they are trying to say, but I think we should not kind of conflate those things together. Intelligence actually makes humans more intelligent and automation actually reduces tasks but in the, the middle of all of that is still the human. So I, I just wanna keep that in mind when we think about AI. We, we sometimes get lost in this world of robots and machines taking over all processes. I think we are far away from it. And, and I think when that comes, I think we'll, we'll figure out different approaches to doing work. But at this point in time, that's not the case, right? So I just wanted to kind of set the level set on what what, what AI means. Now, let's look at some use cases. I think in radiology, there's been a lot of buzz in radiology. In particular, there has been a lot of buzz. Oh, do we need radiologists? Because we need radiologists, let's be very clear. But can it augment image interpretation? Absolutely. Can it help with computer-aided detection or diagnosis? Sure. Can it help with disease risk assessment? Sure. So when we think about clinical outcomes, again, the augmentation is to really be able to look through data at scale and augment that human expertise, right? So sometimes the human expertise can build biases in them because we, we that's what expertise is all about. Expertise is nothing but biases that we build over a period of time based on experience. And what, what AI can do, and particularly machine learning can do is actually look at data at scale, and actually either confirm or dispel some of these biases based on data, right, based on actual outcomes. So when you think about the clinical outcomes, it's actually, again, an aid to actually helping that process. But at the same time, when we always kind of slant ourselves and gear ourselves to talking about AI primarily in the clinical space. Because guess what? It's more interesting, it's more, say, sexy, but, where is revenue really at? That revenue is stuck in the revenue cycle. Right? It's not the clinical aspect of a healthcare system where revenue currently gets stuck. Revenue gets stuck in revenue cycle. And what do we have to do? We have to dump do a series of tasks across a very large workflow and manage that the, to the best of our abilities to actually out kind of boost our outputs and reimbursements. And when you think about it now in terms of AI itself, you can now understand that, take the same construct that I talked about earlier, which is using machine learning, which is kind of the primary form of how you think about AI. And now let me define machine learning. Machine learning is usually a mathematical problem solving approach where you take a large amount of data and give it outcomes. Right? You say, given all these variables, the outcome was, we got reimbursed. Given all these variables, the outcome was we didn't get reimbursed. Given all these variables, we got partially reimbursed. Given all these outcomes, we got a denial. And what the machine is good at is then looking at all of that and saying, given a future structure associated to an incoming new charge, what could be the outcome? That's, That's essentially what machine learning is, predicting outcome. And now you think about that with respect to kind of the reimbursement and revenue cycle tasks. There is a lot of different areas where, if we could really predict, we could make life so much easier, right? If we could analyze an incoming chart and say whether it's coded correctly, whether once coded, if we could analyze and predict if it is going to get a denial, if we could analyze the reason for why it could get a denial, if we could analyze Once we have the denial and we have outstanding AR, whether it's recoverable or not, should we work it? So these are some of the areas that you can actually see that AI can apply itself. And and I'm going to touch on one particular use case focused on AR recovery, right? But you can see the power of being able to learn from data. And, And it's very important to kind of recognize that power because that power lies with us because or, or more importantly with all of you because you have the data. Now let's kind of talk about reimbursement itself and particularly AR and AR management in general and look at some of the challenges that that we see currently as we think about the processes that we have today. I think the biggest thing is data fragmentation. It's not for lack of our skill sets or intellect or ability to kind of look at the data. The problem is the data itself is fairly fragmented. You have a rest system, you have a billing system, in some cases you have a scheduling system. You have data about the patient in multiple systems. And in most scenarios with most of my provider partners that I've worked with, what I've seen is that there is difficulty threading what I call a longitudinal, right? So if I ask somebody, Can you track the patient data? Can you give me that patient data all the way from the point of when they made the phone call, scheduled the patient, gave their eligibility details, we verified it, got prior authorization, came to the visit, post-visit charge code. Can I look at that longitudinally? I'll tell you 9 out of 10 times the answer is no. Because the data is sitting in different pieces. The scheduler has a view to it. It's the builder has a view to it, then somebody who's working, the AR team has a view to it. And then that fragmentation actually impacts the life cycle. So it all feels like sometimes we are all like blind men around the elephant and looking at it from different perspectives. The other problem, and especially on the on the on the reimbursement side, on the, on the revenue cycle side in the back and what I see is lack of real-time data. A lot of the time we are crunching data reactively. Uh, I would say post something happened, right? Um, of course, we are we are looking at it to kind of identify opportunities, but it's not really happening in real time. It's happening with a certain amount of lag. We are looking at a daily report, or a weekly report, or a monthly report, and then we are kind of trying to work backwards as to what happened in the last month. What pays did not pay? Why did they start kind of now denying things that they were approving in the past? And now we start to try to do what I call forensics associated to it. But the problem is by the time you're doing that forensic, it's kind of late. You're already sitting on new things that are getting, getting changed. At the same time, we are seeing a very complex kind of ever-changing reimbursement policy come through, right? I, I, I was kind of participating in an HFMA um, this week and I was listening to speakers talk about 30 to 40% increase in denials by payers just in the last two years. Added to that, they, they were talking about 100 plus reimbursement rule changes. And when reimbursement policy is changing at such a rate, you are always struggling to stay up, up to it. No system is capable of doing that from a human perspective that we kind of run out of bandwidth as we kind of think about this. And, and that continues to what, what it translates usually into is outstanding, right? There is more denial sitting outstanding. There is more unresponded sitting outstanding. And we are always challenged to figure out how to go solve it. And I, I think it'll be preaching to the choir if I talk about staffing challenges. But I, what I'm surprised about is that that continues to kind of grow rather than abate, right? We thought the rate action policies and other things might cool down the overall labor market. We haven't seen that happen, and healthcare continues to suffer from it. I mean, you won't believe how many anecdotes of uh, how I've heard people say that we've lost front office people to Costco or Target or retail that we would never think that would be competition to us from a healthcare perspective coming in and becoming competition based on what what their hourly rates are or what their benefits are in some scenarios. So when you couple these pieces, ready right, a fragmented data on one end, you, we have very limited real-time challenges, data evaluation challenges, constant changes of these policies, and fewer people to work it. All of the outcome of all of that, usually we see is constantly increasing outstanding AR and the amount of AR inventory continuing to grow. At some point, of course, they become non collectible they become difficult to collect and they actually have to be written off and bad debt but that scenario seems to continue to increase uh, and i've have talked to multiple of my partners around this and and there is there hasn't been a place where they have been able to keep up with it. so so my my answer is I think we have to kind of throw away some of the old ways of doing this and look at completely new ways of doing this if we want to be able to catch up. And and the new ways have to rely on our ability to apply technology, particularly what we've talked about, whether it's AI and machine learning or automation to that challenge. And I'll talk about very specific approaches to doing that in the upcoming slides. So... Let's kind of just think about as this inventory grows from an AR perspective, what, what is it that we're doing today? Today, we, we have to deal with our existing billing systems, right? And what, it doesn't matter how sophisticated it is. I've seen them all be great books of record that can push out a claim, have a claim scrubber on it, get a remit back in. But when you think about organizing and allocating work, they all suffer have yeah, they may have some basic system queue capabilities but when you want to organize the work the way you want to organize it and we want to be very dynamic with respect to how we organize work because AR or in, in essence outstanding denials are not staying static. they are changing by the hour they are changing by the day And what what I see many operational leaders have to resort to is essentially kind of deal with spreadsheets. Massive spreadsheets, multiple paper tables that organize this information, segmented, segregated, and then figure out a way to now allocate it to their individual people. So Allocation might mean going into and creating those many queues in the billing system and trying to move it. Or in some cases, just kind of smart sheets are kind of the common term I use nowadays for spreadsheets. So we've spread, we've kind of split it out on smart sheets and sent it out. And essentially, that's a very, I mean, complex, laborious, and to some degree, difficult task. Because if, as we described, if the ER is that dynamic, then you are actually cannot apply a set of static rules or pivots that you're doing. You you have to keep looking at it in different ways, which makes it very difficult, actually, because at any point in time, we have a set of rules that we want to follow. So what what that does is that we kind of default to some rules. And and I've heard this many a times, right? Oh, it's a high dollar claim we have to work it. And i have asked the question, why do we believe we have to work it? Uh, Oh, it's a high dollar claim, we're not going to just let it go. Agree with it, you have to work your high dollar claim. But should that be the first thing you work? And that's a question to ask. So so some of the mechanics that are used when you're kind of applying this is that you're taking a few factors, whether it's dollars. In some cases, reactively, I've seen, oh, the AR has grown very large. Oh, my God, we are kind of in trouble. Let's kind of just look at everything that's going to expire filing limits or appeal limits. Let's just make sure that we touch it. And then you end up having to do that. Guess what? Now new AR is coming, and now that's starting to actually age right? So you start to have an aging problem, right? Outstanding AR, AR over 120 metrics start to be impacted. And once you're trying to do this in spreadsheets, you actually have limited understanding from a resource planning perspective, because you you think you have 10 people, all 10 people being equal. In some cases, we were kind of joking that organizations still do the alpha-based breakouts, which is very difficult to work with, right? I mean, alpha break-based breakouts and patient names is not an easy task. So what if a lot of people with A's start to have problems, right? How do you deal with it, right? And what if the pairs that you're dealing with in the alpha is very different? So the resource planning becomes very difficult. Now, once you have allocated work, in most cases, because we are trying to touch everything and we are trying to touch everything that, that's got certain dollar value or filing limit or others, some of them may not really need a lot of work to be done. So what happens is a lot of what I call mundane, time-consuming follow-up continues to happen associated. So it feels like we are doing work because there is a lot of widgets being produced. Oh, we, we touched 50 pounds today. But essentially what we did in most scenarios, we followed up on something that at some point the bear is going to be us okay, now if you need to have now a strategy, we know if the payer is gonna pay for us. In many cases, we don't know that very well. So we should touch it. And did we just refile the claim? Should we, how, how much time should we wait before we check the status on this? Right, These are questions not completely accounted for, which means critical resources that you have in most scenarios are actually just kind of focused on kind of this mundane follow-up associated to it. So, Folks who you would rather have focus on high-value tasks have high-value tasks mixed with low-value tasks with equal priority, right? So they, they, and they have to produce an output, so they, they they attack all of them with the same priority, which essentially is not, not very fulfilling from, from a research perspective, but more importantly, not very much what I call a value add from, from the work that we are doing from an ER management. So let's kind of think about how we could change this from an AI perspective, right? And I talk about a five-step approach to changing this. Now, can you realistically apply all five steps? The answer is yes. We've, we've done this in other places with other partners. But even if you start somewhere and make progress associated with the five steps, you can actually do this in a phase manner, right? So what what are the five steps? Let's kind of touch on them, right? The first is analyze, right? Analyze is really to analyze the outstanding AR and understand what is your recovery strategy associated to it. And what is it based on, right? Is it staying constant as in all AR is worked the same way every day, every week, every month? Or are you able to analyze the incoming AR and change your recovery strategy according to it? That's one part of it. The second piece is predict. And, and I think this is where AI kind of plays a very critical role, where if you can predict at a charge level whether you actually are going to recover, how much are you going to recover? Because most of the times we are, we, are, we the data, and I've looked at data a lot, is that data is organized by gross charges. You don't even know what the collectible looks like, what is the allowable associated to it what the actual collectible is. And of the collectible, do you get paid all the time or not? And it's such a powerful thing to know, because if you can actually understand which ones are truly collectible at what level, now your order is completely sorted. Because something that's a $1,000 of gross charges, but now really you can only collect $200 off it, because once you net it down to allowables and then you look at the pair kind of reimbursement patterns associated to it, now that charge is really only worth $200 versus there is a charge that sits out there at $350, which is going to be collected at $30. And in, in most cases, when you look at it from a gross perspective, you're actually prioritizing based on gross, not based on actuals that you can bring. So this is where the prediction is very powerful. If you can build, and you are you you are sitting on the data, and I'll touch on this a little bit, but but you you know these patterns, you you have treasure trove of data that you have available to you that you can use to do this ana- analysis and prediction. You need a good data science team or a good good partner to work with, but those are not the most difficult problem. The difficult problem is data, and you have it, you own it. So once you predict something, the next big thing is to prioritize it. We talked about the prioritization challenge a little bit earlier, which is, oh, we predict we do it on high dollars or filing limits or a combination of high dollars and filing. But there are many dimensions to prioritization. Let me throw a few at you. You need to know how many payers can a resource work in a day. So let's assume you might give a resource and say, your target is to work 50 accounts. But if all 50 accounts are from 50 different payers, they would have a tough time following up on all of them. So you want to know what is the optimal number of payers a resource can do? What is the optimal amount a resource can do? Are all resources equal? Are some resources better than others? And can they do more compared to others? Right? Are we kind of looking at them as all equals? Right? So it's important to kind of understand those functions associated to it and be able to prioritize. So when you think about the dimension of prioritization, it's more than just dollars, gross charges, and filing limits. Now think about the dimension being changed to predicted recovery dollars, which essentially different gross charges. What is the actual effort that could be applied to it? How many resources do we have? How much can these resources do? Can I then dimension it based on how many payers can these resources work at the same time? Now you can see that it's no longer a two-dimensional pivot problem. It's a multi-dimensional problem. Guess what is really good at doing multi-dimensional problems? Machine learning, AI is really good at taking multiple dimensions and coming up with what is called an optimization algorithm, right? And an optimization algorithm can then actually organize the data for you. Once you have that, you want to organize what? you want to organize work in a way that you can actually get it done and then realize through automation so i'll touch on some of these things as we as i'll i'll double click into each one of them as we go through this exercise so so you have some sense of how this can be actually achieved in real life so let's talk about this whole notion of analytics right we, we sometimes kind of look at, uh, we talked about that all charges don't look equal right? Sometimes all charges have to be kind of crunched down to something that is more meaningful with respect to actual outcome value, right? If we can actually understand its collectible value, it changes the dimension of what we are looking at. You need to measure these across many dimensions, right? What payers, what outstanding denial is there, right? What financial class do they belong to? These are all impactful items and dimensions that have to be looked at when you think about AR in general from an analytics perspective. The other big thing that is critical is to also look at it from what I refer to as a financial value versus operational value. Right? What I mean by that is operationally, does it make, it, and we have some very broad stroke understanding of operational value. Right? We say, boy, oh, I think it takes one and a half touches or two touches to actually recover this. From an AR perspective. But actually those are very, I I, would, I usually tell kind of average is the worst statistic and, and usually in this case it applies very well because all claims are not one and a half touches. On an average they may one and a half touches. Something could be like five touches. Something could be just one touch. Being able to understand the operational value and, and kind of factor that from an analytics perspective allows you to look at your AR very differently. The other thing is You've worked on it, and are you waiting on it? Or are you going to have to do additional work to get more cash? That's kind of an understanding that needs to be done. And the other big thing from an AR analytics perspective that, that I think I want to touch on is I think we talked about denials. Actually, you can do a lot of what I call denial hotspotting and root cause analysis from any other. You can understand which payers, which CPTs, which facilities are kind of Causing it, which physicians are causing it? Sometimes it can, it may be related to a very particular form of documentation. Or is there a front office challenge in a certain uh, facility? We have dimensioned this against facility against the type of denial, right? Are we seeing a lot of what I call eligibility, COB, or, or related prior denials in the front end? Right? Is there a front office challenge associated with it? So these are different dimensions, I think, that are critical to be looked at as we think about the analyze phase. And, and, and what is important is that this needs to be done as real-time as possible, right? No more than like a day lag associated to this doing this analysis. Because what we've seen is that these patterns keep changing quite a bit. They, are, they, 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 they don't stay static. Most of the times these patterns are shifting. They're shifting based on payer reimbursements. They may be even shifting just based on the payer Claim system having an issue. We don't know that. Having having been at the pair at a pair and led some very large pair claim systems, I can tell you they can have issues that cycle claims. And, and you now see a new pattern that emerges. So very important to focus on this on a daily basis. It can't be reactive weekly reports or monthly reports and then forensics on monthly and deep dive and then come down to it. It's always useful to do it real-time, bottom-up, insights-driven, right? One of the things I talk about when I think about analytics in general, like I keep telling people, right, there is, a, there is a lot of data, there is some information, and there are no insights, right? I think applies most of the time. We have a ton of data at hand. We have the ability to kind of look at it in some very basic forms, in the form of reports that come out of billing systems or others, and those essentially help you with what I call information. It doesn't tell you a story, it just gives you some information. Now you have to make up your own insight. What you really need when I think about analytics is essentially insight systems, not information systems. I see a lot of billing systems and a lot of what I see particularly in our space and radiology is that There's a lot of information available, but there's limited insights available, right? So as I said, a lot of data, little information, no insights. So we just have to be able to actually get to a very insight-rich view of analytics. And that's going to be critical to be successful as we think about this. Now, once we analyze, we know what it looks like, what our strategy is, and we touched on this a little bit, and we've spent quite a bit of time at Infinix kind of working this, but in, in general, you are sitting on oil field of data. The question is, how do you mine, it, right? And, and there are techniques applied in machine learning and other AI formats where it can take large data sets. What we have what done is kind of look at data and looked at charges, and from charges, denials, and then payments. And then you can start to now impute from it what essentially happened with respect to a charge. Did it get paid? Did it get a denial? Did we have to act on the denial? And then it got another denial and then we got paid. How much, how many actions were taken? And, And most of this data is available in your billing systems. The one area that we see that most billing systems struggle today is essentially knowing what actions led to outcomes. That's the one area I see still a challenge. Because if you look at most of what is done in terms of action, right? Whether you followed up with the payer, whether you appealed it, whether you did, there may be some what I call statuses that may be useful to be mined, but a lot of the real knowledge is actually stored in notes, right? So you, you think about the notes associated to the account, you will see in AR or a biller typing in a lot of notes about here is what we did, here is how we adjusted it, here is the thing we did that led it to get paid. And that's currently a little bit of a data gap, but, but if you exclude that part, there is a tremendous amount of data that's available. right? And, and what, what we have seen is that you can look at data historically over a 18 to 24 month period and you you can learn all of these components. Now, is it easy? I'm not I'm not proposing to say it's easy, but is it doable? Absolutely. It's very much doable. And, and you can build out something that actually gives you an outcome predictability with respect to the AR every time. Many cases we've been able to do that plus or minus five dollars from the actual children. So you need to be able to learn from large data sets. You have 24 months worth of data. That's great because usually most charges kind of completely are what I call completely work done, worked out by the end of 24 months. Even if it's been outstanding in some shape or form, it's written off or bad debt by the end of it or has gone to self-pay and the patient has paid for it. Or whatever happens associated to it, that's a good enough time to learn the history associated to a given charge. So you have that data. And But what is more important on these kinds of models, which is important to remember when you build it or work with other partners to on it, is that the first model is fairly easy because you're just working off historical data. What is critical is that any such solution has the ability to learn from feedback and refresh on a very frequent basis. What I mean by that is that History is not always a precursor to the future. Right? We've heard that from a stock market perspective all the time. And it it applies, unfortunately, applies to kind of pair denials. Right? History is not always a precursor to the future, which means as your future is being, as you currently work it, and you're currently working the outcomes, you have to be able to con- constantly learn and actually be able to readjust some of these weights and factors associated with it. That will absolutely be very powerful. Now you have a self-learning system, right? So you have this powerful, as I talked about it as an augmentation capability, you have this powerful device that is constantly consuming all your incoming kind of revenue, outstanding AR, ER, unresponded, denials, charges, and constantly learning from it as to whether you're going to get paid or not going to get paid. Right. And that's that that now is such a powerful tool that you can tap into as you think about kind of what strategies to apply and how much people are necessary. How much will be your actually collection efficiency with respect to going after it? Because if you you believe your collection efficiency is X as as a metric, but you learn that the newer denials are much more difficult to overcome, you may want to adjust your collection efficiency and learn that you may have a lower collection efficiency than what you promised, which means revenues are gonna be lower, cash is going to be lower, which the CFO absolutely would like to understand from any revenue cycle leader, whether that's possible or not. So those are, I would say, critical things that you can do when you think about actual prediction associated with this. Right, so we talked about prediction. So the next big step is prioritization. We touched on this a little bit as I was explaining the five steps. Look at it from many dimensions. This is where again, machine learning is very powerful in being able to look at many dimensions. So optimization algorithms within machine learning are interesting constructs that actually what they do is they optimize to a value. So what we did was we took data from all the outstanding AR. we said, here is what we see as kind of collectible dollars associated to every charge. Here is how many resources we have. Here is what we think any resource can do. Here is how many pairs in a day a resource can work. Here is how many touches at a claim level we believe is necessary to get that claim recovered or effort involved. So you take these dimensions at the same time and feed into an optimization algorithm and say optimize for maximum cash. And what the outcome of doing something like that is what it does is it prioritizes every charge based on an optimization factor. What that means is if you have 100 charges to be worked, and in most cases, in most organizations, if you have 100 charges to be worked, you only have resources to work 50 of them, 40 of them, or 60 of them. I mean, if you are in an organization that has 100 outstanding charges and you're working all 100 charges every day, you don't need any of this. Because guess what? If you can get to everything, it doesn't matter. But usually that's not the case. Usually you can only do 20 or 30 or 40% at the best with respect to doing it. When that happens, then now you want to look at it top down, 1 to 100. And you want to be able to touch the top 40. So what this does is it actually organizes based on that maximizing cash function into a ranked order of 1 to 100. Right now, once so you've organized it ranked one through 100, it's very easy to now to determine that you have to work them. You have to work them in what order? You order one through 100. And the other interesting aspect of that is that this prioritization, along with the prediction I talked about, should be done like on a daily basis. That's kind of the, the least amount of time. I mean, and with some of our... Other partners, we've actually done it like on a weekly basis because teams get very disoriented if they are reorganized to work every day. But the best way to do this is dynamically every day because your inventory changes every day, right? A claim and I'll just use an example of filing limit as an example. A claim that was like only $100 worth, we believe can be easily recovered, but it's only $100 worth, sits at position 67 day one. But guess what? Its filing limit is only a day out or two days out. Now it completely jumps rank and maybe becomes top 10. So it's, 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 it's in, important to understand that the more dynamically you can do this prioritization, the better it gets, right? So that's, that's a critical element to understand associated with this prioritization. The more dimensions you can consider, the more richer it becomes in terms of being able to recover cash. Right, so I, I just wanted to kind of highlight the fact that prioritization frequency is a critical, important task. Now, once you prioritize, you have to organize work, right? and this is where, as I said, as as I said, no charge is equal, no two people are equal either, right? So you want to be able to organize work in a structure that gives you the maximum efficiency. So, which means you have to be able to learn from how they're doing which means again you can apply machine learning in some scenarios where you know you have a ton of data like which person did what claim how many touches were required on it what the outcome was guess what you can learn the efficiency of a person with respect to it oh this person is really good at it nice great outcomes that he's seeing should we organize the data where he gets the most efficient work to be given even if you can't get down to that level, look at being able to organize with the least amount of tasks, right? So if I organize by pair, should I be able to give somebody a large number of cases for a given pair that they can actually optimize because they are going to make a phone call, they can actually optimize the number of status checks they can do. But at the same time, you also want to give them work that actually does not include a lot of follow-up. And I, I talk about that. That's where automation, I think, and we'll talk about that in a minute, comes into play is that you, can, you you want to be able to orchestrate work between what I call is human agents and automation agents, because there will be work that does not require a lot of critical thinking or application. And what you want to do is identify them in the workflow and be able to orchestrate in a way where you can actually allocate it to somebody that needs critical thinking or allocate it to a machine and say, hey, do it. This is repetitive work. But guess what? You won't be able to synchronize and orchestrate it. This is where I see the billing systems kind of struggle with it. Because if the machine is not able to do it, you want the human to automatically get it seamlessly. You should not have to think about it. It should not sit in some other work queue where now somebody has to go manually allocate to somebody saying, oh, my God, machine tried, nothing happened. We need to go do it ourselves. So these are things that have to be kind of really thought through when you're actually bringing these pieces together. Because always what is outstanding, and then once you prioritize it, as I said, one through 100, is always going to be larger than how many people do you. The other important thing of allocation that we have seen, and we've seen this in, when you incentivize people on what I call outputs rather than outcomes, people are, as Charlie Munger said, show me an incentive, I'll show you the behavior. Behavior is I want to do X number of widgets because I'm going to be measured on X number of widgets. And actually that that actually is dissens incentive from your perspective because it doesn't you don't know whether that work actually produces value. People then kind of take on a lot of follow-up activity and say, oh, I did 50 widgets, but wait a minute, a bunch of them were cherry picked to be just follow-ups. But in 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 such a scenario, when you're organizing work, you don't want cherry picking. You want to first identify work that is essentially Machine-driven, assign it to machine queues. Take work that is human capacity-driven and assign it to humans. Organize it in a way that they are maximizing their capacity. And then you want to measure them on outcomes. How many of them really collected? How many of them really had outcomes that were positive? Not just, we tried it five times and we didn't get anything. So it's very critical to actually apply... AI to actually understand that data. And this is one area where I see a big gap today because most systems are not capturing data about people and their work in a way that can be actually learned from. So when we struggle with that quite a bit as we look at historical data, there is very little that tells us who did well, who did poorly. So that's one area to think about. We, our solution has been to kind of just build our own allocation approach to doing it in a workflow search system. But in most cases, this is one area like if you're doing it in spreadsheets, you want to be able to get the work and be able to measure the outcome somewhere. Otherwise, if you don't measure the outcome, then it's very difficult to know who did work and what that led like to. And in many cases, it's it's also not as simple as I make it sound, because as most of you know, work never gets done by just one person in a workflow. In some cases, it's going from Hey, we got a denial. Somebody on the air follows up. We realize it's coding. It's has to go to a coder to go do the code, then read to submit the claim. See if we now get another denial and we have another person. So the life cycle is not as simple as I make it sound, but you have to be able to track it to know what the outcome. Is. So it's important to be able to kind of step back and allocate work. That brings us to kind of the realization aspect of it. And I mean you and you all of you may have heard and I've attending some sessions recently, it's all the conversation is about automation. Can we throw bots at this? Can we throw bots at that? And my answer to it is that automation is not just about bots. It's about organizing work to realize efficiency, right? And as I mentioned earlier, right, if you can allocate work to automation agents, right, if you're doing follow-ups and if you have tasks that are straightforward appeals, right? You think appeal is the complex part, but it's not. Essentially, it's a template that goes out. In most cases, it's going electronically to appear on a website. You can actually make that template fairly straightforward. You can actually generate that template and submit it fairly easily. So it is important to apply automation, but you have to always recognize that automation standalone actually may introduce inefficiency rather than efficiency in your system. And, and I think two things are very critical for from an op- op- operational perspective if you're trying to apply automation. One is, how well can you orchestrate it with your human process? It's very important to do that process mapping. Sometimes we kind of walk into these projects and say, hey, let's take this entire process. Let's automate all of it. Guess what? Most processes are too complex to automate into it, which means there'll always be what I call a human in the loop with respect to automation. Guess what? What what that means is if the human is not collaborative with the automation, and the human will only be collaborative if the process is synchronized, where they feel that they're doing the best value and they're letting the automation take care of the ground. But if they're not synchronized, you will have detractors, right? And when you have detractors, and if you don't have strong change management associated to it, it'll actually make it look more inefficient. You won't believe how many times I've been in organizations where we have implemented automation and we have taken a step back. Like, wait a minute, that made no sense. What we realized is the mapping was incorrect. Oh, wait a minute, this data came back, but now it took more time for me to swivel chair this data into the system. Because it sits in this other system, so I I don't have access to it. Or it came back in a spreadsheet, so I need to key it back, right? So you really have to spend the effort and the energy associated to it and identify the processes that can be really automated, synchronized and orchestrated with the humans involved in the process, and then get that integrated into your system. So people are not having to go five different places to get the outcome of automation and then have to eat it and in again into the business. system that's where some of these challenges come but it can be done it's a, we've seen it being done and being effective it just needs a lot of work so i said a lot of different things hopefully you got a gist of how we kind of think about this whole life cycle again I, what i wanted to do was take a snapshot a sing, single slice of a problem statement within revenue cycle that we face within the radiology imaging kind of community and kind of show you how AI applies to it, how automation applies to it. There are many different processes that can be done similarly, right? With denial prevention, people talk about it and a lot of others, coding, clinical document improvement, or getting physician input. So there's a lot of different places that this applies. We've applied it in prior authorization and other areas, but. But hopefully this gave you a little little sample of how you can actually practically think of AI's application within within revenue cycle and within kind of ER management. Thank you, Navani, that was wonderful. Thank you everyone for attending today.